Hello and welcome to another Imagining Freedom podcast, which is focused on our rights and freedoms. I recently recorded an interview with a 27-year-old who has a lot of very interesting things to say on many subjects, from COVID-19 and lockdowns through to freedom of speech, right through to Hayek. Jonathan Rainey is standing as a dual candidate for the Scottish Libertarian Party in the forthcoming Scottish Parliament elections, for the Dumbarton constituency and for the West of Scotland regional list. I first met Jonathan and his mother Christine at the protests in Glasgow last year. I opened the interview by asking Jonathan if he was happy to discuss the vaccination that his family believes may have triggered his condition of high-functioning autism. With regards to the vaccine itself, which my parents you know, still feel to this day has caused it, well, they saw, well, I ended up having to come out to my mother's womb in the Vale of Leaving Hospital in Alexandria in 1994, albeit via C-section, because I well, couldn't quite get out mm. uh, during the birth process. Right. So um, I ended up having to be cut out via C-section and just allowed to grow. And I actually was growing quite well, according to well, when my parents witnessed me growing up. But as soon as I got to about 18 months old, and I was required to take uh, some of the vaccines, including the MMR vaccine, mm. uh, my mother ended up noticing that um, I ended up starting to completely regress in terms of development. I started right. being socially isolated. I mm. didn't want to necessarily be with other people. In, in fact, I became quite sensitive to noise. I didn't like clean noise. By the way, it didn't matter what noise it was. Mm. I mean, if it was something like, uh, particularly if it was cheering at a party in the ho- in the community halls, I mean, I just wanted out of there in that moment. I did. I just didn't want to face it. Yeah. Um, and so I had to go through all those years. Well, we left in Dumbarton for a bit, but then we moved to Dalmuir for the mid to late 1990s. And we stayed in Dalmuir for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but naturally, surprisingly, I did get lots of, I managed to get huge amounts of sleep, especially during the night, even if there was a railway in directly behind the house we stayed in. Um, and so I eventually got diagnosed um, with high functioning autism, as they called it. And mm-hmm. at the age of five in 1999, and I think it was just after we moved back to Dumbarton, particularly in the east end of the house we live in to this day, since 1998. Right. Um, and so we ended up, originally I did go to a special needs school in Mount Blow, which is just above uh, Dalmuir, but then it got transferred to Renton Primary School because we were told that there was a language unit available, specialist language unit available for kids who are disabled, that we can go there and grow. And yes, even though there were some setbacks, yeah, I did talk about sometimes how I ended up with this quite horrible, nasty teacher in primary two, who'd mm. be, who, as it took, well, it turned out over the years when I learned to probably speak a bit more fluent uh, English and understand it. Um, she, well, apparently she had, a prob- she had problems with her husband being an alcoholic, and it was known to take the stress out on many other pupils, including myself, and many other learning assistants actually knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I think the final straw came, and I didn't even know about it one time, when one of my best friend's dads noticed that um, his son was being given milk, even though he was lactose intolerant. And he complained to the head teacher about it, saying, what, they me- what there's the meaning of this? And eventually, that ended up being the straw that broke the camel's back, and the teacher in particular got sacked. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, you know, over time, even if I was kind of still socially awkward in primary school as well, to a certain extent in secondary school as well, yeah, um, I managed to progress well in terms of the education. Albeit, I didn't quite achieve a single higher in uh, secondary school, uh, but I sort of tried to make up for it by going on to certain college college courses like NC Media in 2012 to 2013, and then NC Civil Engineering in Stoke. Well, then still college, but now called Glasgow Kelvin College from 2013 to 2014. Mm. Um, so, is it, so there are times whereby you can, you be, you do know that you can progress in life. Yeah. Good, good. Well, and were you, um, did you have signs of autism before you had the MMR there then, or was it just after that, that vaccine that it happened? Well, as I mentioned, uh, it was only when, I actually ended up having the MMR vaccine mm-hmm. and my parents started to really notice what was going on and as I did mention I was developing quite normally there was no sign of any harm or psychological problem within me when I was developing as a baby um, until that happened so um, it's really I don't know if it could be a coincidence or just something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah yeah well I'm going to start um, just asking you about the your political campaign now and I thought I'd start with the actual party the libertarian the Scottish libertarian parties because I think that um many people many people might get them confused with the Scottish Lib Dems and the Liberals so I just wondered if you could explain for the audience what it is that the Scottish Libertarians stand for and what distinguishes them from the Scottish Lib Dem party and also how you got involved with them well, the Scottish Libertarian Party itself is about mainly about the principle of libertarianism, which is quite different from the precept of uh, liberalism. I mean, liberalism did kind of start in France for a time during its history, particularly in the French, since the French Revolution had came about. And you know, it's mainly about libertarianism goes about like this, and it came from the French Revolution itself that we should not have too much bigger government, and we as an individual ourselves should not be trying to physically hurt anybody else and take take other people's stuff as theft. Um, but what distinguishes the party from the Liberal Democrats and maybe even uh, sometimes the Labour Party, some people may associate it with that, is that, well, unlike those particular political parties like, you know, the Liberal, what was formerly called the Liberal Party in history, um, is that, we don't tend to try and advocate for even bigger government in everybody's lives um, for no matter what excuse there is. And so the purpose of wanting to actually limit government is therefore to is therefore quite critical, really, to, mm. to help a functioning society to be, well, free, I suppose. Yeah. Now, with regards to how I personally got involved with the Scottish Libertarian Party, now, I did kind of describe uh, about the first half of my life just there with that personal uh, personal story. Mm-hmm. Um, with regards to going into 2008, um, I suppose going through high school, um, well, I sort of got red-pilled by the 2008 recession. I thought, okay, what's this? The economy's going downhill, and I was worried that my dad may lose his job. But at, the mo- at that time, really, I was just mainly generally apolitical, but generally centre-left, just like what a lot of people tended to lean Mm-hmm. In the west of Scotland, there's a lot yeah. of um, left wing or central central left following. Yep, yeah. yeah. and well, 
I ended up questioning a lot of things and during the taxi rides, because yeah, I did get to go in taxis to and from both primary schools and secondary schools, albeit they were paid via the council via taxation. Um, my friends and I, I used to always listen to the radio news in the morning because it would always come on and I would always be having a good uh, inkling to myself and saying, well, hang on a second, they may speak certain points on some things, but they're not really trustworthy to mm-hmm. even go by, particularly in talking about the Conservatives, Labour and the Lib Dems, particularly when the 2010 election came along. And I just felt, well, hang on, those parties are not really that good at all. Um, but then going into 2010, I started seeing what was going on with uh, people kicking off about the Conservative Party, doing all the wrongdoings in the country. And I felt because well, I've always had a good gut feeling of one Scottish independence anyway. I mean, I've never really tried to question anyway, I thought it's long overdue. I felt maybe I might as well try to turn to some political parties if I turn uh, 18, but when I'm eligible to vote for things like the SNP and the Greens, because at least we need some, for, I don't care at that time what they could stand for. I mean, we need some alternative mm-hmm. and I ended up going for those particular political parties. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wanted an alternative to the Westminster politics? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, I put forward my first vote in the council elections at the time for the SNP because I felt it was time to well, have another form of government. But we still ended up with the Labour fund government, which was still traditional at the time. Um, but then 2014 came along with the independence referendum that came around. I thought, finally, there's a good chance that our voices are really going to be heard this time with this new referendum that's going about. And my mum and I actually voted, walked over to the polling station and voted yes. I even put uh, cover photos in my Facebook profile at the time saying, please vote yes in 18th of September 2014. But I was quite disappointed the next day when I found that the result was 55% no, uh, 45% yes. But it didn't stop a lot of the activism going around, including small marches, including one that my mum and I attended on the 16th of November 2014, when there was a small march that took place from Dumbarton Castle to all the way through the town centre to Post Eves Park, which is beside Leaving Grove Park in the town. Mm-hmm. Um, but then going through into 2015, I started getting into much of the alternative media stuff. I mean, I ended up being introduced to some certain links that were posted, albeit via Facebook, by a guitar teacher that I knew that was getting lessons from at the time in Oak Patrick. And he would share things on his Facebook page from the likes of not just David Icke, but also from other certain sites like the Antimedia and the Free Thought Project. And mm-hmm. there were certain stories going about which you know I never would have known had been going on. I mean, I ended up checking them out big time. And in 2015, I really, even when I was still you know, watching the mainstream media a lot of the time with my parents, um, I still saw that I was still feeling quite sceptical about the foreign policy that was going on especially yeah. when you think about the war that was escalating in Syria at the time. Mm. Well, most of the time when it was 2012, 2013, 2014, you know, you'd see all these atrocities being filmed on the mainstream media and you think, well, you know, it's bad, but what can you do? You know, unfortunately, if the people decide to go out of the country and flee elsewhere, well, that's a, that's a fact we're going to have to face. But then 2015 came along with strong calls for interventionism came around and then we saw Russia getting involved in mm-hmm. Syria, albeit at the behest of uh, Bashar al-Assad, who invited them in. 
uh, to actually carry out the missions to get rid of the Islamic State terrorists and all the other terrorist groups. But when our forces were going in, I mean, there was talk of, you know, World War Three potentially coming about. And I really ended up becoming more and more sceptical of the foreign policy. I started researching it a lot more and I started diving in to and certain things. And was this things. the um, SNP foreign policy or the Conservatives in Westminster? Or were you just feeling that all the parties were on the same side, all the big parties? Well, it was mainly the Conservative Party, along with some, to some extent, the Labour Party, who are in favour of the interventions in the Middle East, especially in Syria at the time of the airstrikes. And at the time, surprise, surprise, the SNP. I mean, in 2015, I did place also my vote for the SNP during that general election. Um, but it was quite surprising that they actually took the stance, and they quite really should have done that kind of stance, where they were saying that they're against the new what any kind of new wars developing in the Middle East there should be new tra- open transparent procedures and investigating what really happened mm-hmm. before jumping to any emotional knee-jerk reactions. Um, but then of course going into 2016 after I started getting to some forms of the alternative media including via the Richie Allen show a few times uh, that year mm-hmm. there was talk of a new referendum on leaving the European Union. Now, I, was a kind of, I wasn't really at that much in touch with the European Union at all. I didn't know what it was. And being the sort of person who I thought was you know, red-pilled, but also still kind of young and dumb, um, I thought that the European Union was a good thing. And because I saw everybody was wanting to vote Remain, I thought, oh, if we lose, if we go out the EU, we're going to lose all these rights to free movement, travelling all over Europe, especially going on, not just on the holiday, but with trade. And we'll lose all these regulations on protecting the environment and also the human rights laws. Um, I was one of those people that just wanted to uh, wanted to just by default vote remain just based mm-hmm. on my emotions. I mean, there was a, an astonishing lack of understanding about the EU. And I think there still is on all sides, really, but whatever side of the fence you're on. I, I remember when that Brexit debate was going on. Um, you would ask people why they either liked or didn't like the EU and they never really had a a sort of rational answer. No one could really give you many facts about it. It was always about the heart over the head. That's what I felt anyway. Well, um, I ended up, so things kind of progressed. I mean, I didn't pay that much attention to the 2016 Scottish parliamentary elections, to be honest, because I felt as if I was starting to get, well, disillusioned by what was going on, and my main mind was focused on the Brexit referendum because the rhetoric and um, talk it, the talk of it just kept getting louder and louder throughout the year. Mm-hmm. It was a bit very de- and, divisive. Yeah, it was quite divisive, and I checked. You know, I started doing quite the unthinkable about two weeks before the referendum itself came about on the 23rd of June 2016, when I started clicking on some of the links, particularly from uh, the links that my guitar teacher was sharing on Facebook as usual. And I started seeing this interview by Tony Gosling when he was talking about the European Union, how it formed and what it's been doing the last several years. I even started getting into one particular video that Paul Joseph Watson put on to YouTube where he was talking about the European Union. I was completely blown away Mm. by when the truth was revealed about how the European Union, the institution itself, actually works. And my mind instantly changed. Obviously, I was still a bit nervous because it was a bit of a divisive time to actually change my mind and vote leave in the e-referendum. And exactly during that time, I decided to do that. I I went to the polling station, the same place that took place to vote in 2012, 2014, 2015, to just vote leave. Um, I thought 
because of the, all the media rhetoric that was going on, that the same result of Remain was going to happen, just like back when there was no back in 2014. Um, but to my surprise, the next day when I woke up in the morning, it was a bit of a sunny day, glorious day. Mm-hmm. Um, the result was 52% leaving the European Union. Mm-hmm. I thought, yes, wow. I remember being surprised at that. Yeah. And I, thought, <laughs> and I also wow, thought people actually made quite a wise choice. Oh, it was not quite surprising that Scotland as well as Northern Ireland decided to vote Remain because we all kind of expected that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I was surprised afterwards was the extremely, well, if you thought divisive was bad in the lead up to the referendum mm-hmm. itself, it then just completely exploded mm-hmm. on, on the very day the results were announced. And people were just, I mean, I saw certain people, including my family members, not just living in Scotland, but also down south in England, because I've got a lot of them living around Milton Keynes, that were kicking off on Facebook, uh, saying things like, this is, the, this is like the end. Mm. I mean, talk about talk about the rhetoric. Yes. And I then started seeing all, you know, particularly how even just the very far sections of the left were kicking off about it, particularly in places like London. And they were trying to claim that, oh, Russia intervened in the whole referendum result. And see what you've done with voting leave. There's a there's going to be racism and sexism, homophobia going to be on the rise. It was very emotionally driven, wasn't it? It was yeah. really, yeah. I do remember on Twitter one time I did call out, I did actually see one footage of this particular taxi driver that was going up to one particular non-white guy and was telling him things like, right, we've got to leave, you can go home. Things like that. I mean, I was caught. I did actually speak on Twitter about it, saying, "Yeah, I voted Leave, but you know, I don't like any of this whatsoever." Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, but that didn't seem to do anything to just uh, dis- diffuse the whole situation. I mean, some people se- seem to have the attitude that racism only started after the Brexit vote, whereas it had been going on for a long time before that. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, they should have probably even realised what they were saying before they'd even. Uh, want to look into the past, like let's say, you know, for example, back into the se- to the seventies and eighties when actual skinheads were going about. I mean, Mum told me yeah. stories about this, particularly when they were influenced by the likes of Enoch Powell. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be, it is subject for certain debates that people can view on the internet, uh, but they would be going about, you know, sort of like how Aunt, the likes of how Antifa would be going about treating Trump supporters in certain places. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they should look back into that time and think, oh, well, that's bad. And we should be lucky that we've progressed over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, but then going through 2016, you know, uh, when things progressed, I thought, OK, the initiation to actually leave the European Union isn't quite happening as mm-hmm. much. And I ended up being red pill big time, not just by Paul Dust Watson, but certain other people, including uh, James Alsop. I started looking into certain sites like not just Infowars, but Richie mm-hmm. Allen, as well as even David Icke himself. I even started reading some of his books that year, including one of the first books I started taking a start of a read on was uh, Alice in Wonderland and the World Trade Centre Disaster. Mm-hmm. And I had to, at times, put the book down because I was absolutely shocked at what I was even reading. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, surely this whole idea of centralisation going on, surely this is not true, surely you know, there's no plan going on. But then I started looking into everything else, and once you're awake, it's usually mm. difficult to get back to sleep. It's a total paradigm shift. Yeah, and then of course when, uh, of course, my friends were completely cool with me when I said to them that I voted leave, and there was no tension or animosity between us whatsoever. 
Um, but then, of course, the Trump election came along, and this is when things really started to kick off about what when I saw the particularly what was going on on the mainstream political left, who I thought I was, over the years I was going to be a part of, even mm-hmm. if it meant training some forms of ideas. But then when they started really kicking off and started becoming quite uh, violent in terms of both words as well as even uh, some forms of physical rhetoric I saw going on in America, especially when the inauguration of Trump happened in 2017, I thought, okay, something definitely is not right here. Mm-hmm. And I started looking into various things, not just including with, I mean, I, some of the people I did get to see over the years, including through uh, watching on places like YouTube, include not just the Ron Paul Liberty Report, but mm-hmm. also even the X-22 Report. When I started mm-hmm. looking into yeah. everything, I mean, Potter's have also been the kind of guy who's not just therefore quite edgy in what he says on many things, but he's mm-hmm. also most importantly quite anti-war, which is what I absolutely like because, you know, it's high time, you know, we don't like these, it's high time we start opposing these bad foreign wars that are going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, there was what happened in the Ukraine as well. I mean, that seemed, that was really uh, very well, that was skewed in the media yeah. to, to be all Russia's fault. And yet mm-hmm. it was really a coup that was happening by the Western powers long before Russia got involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we ended up seeing that through 2014 as well, and we didn't. Surprisingly, we didn't even suspect there was going to be possibly a world uh, war at all. In fact, things just kind of sorted themselves out. I was completely unaware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then going into things like 2018, well, actually mid 2017, to be honest, there was then this major push to try and completely reverse the whole uh, Brexit referendum result with all the rhetoric being aimed. Uh, many of us who voted leave as if somehow because you by virtue of voting leave then somehow you're racist you're sexist you're homophobe mm-hmm. you're transphobe etc yeah. it's, it's of, like you've got democracy but as long as things. yeah i mean it's almost as if they're saying well you've got democracy but as long as you vote in the right way you can mm-hmm. have democracy yeah and you know going into 2018 when I, of course i was examining many many things going on um, then, of course, came along the, these certain bad laws like the Copyright Directive in the European oh, Union, yeah. for example, when it was introduced in 2018. I was mm-hmm. very opposed to it from the start, from actually checking the actual law itself. I mean, it was very damaging. To, it's quite damaging to freedom of speech. Yes, itself. that's terrible. And so, it's sort of sneaking in under the radar. Yeah. And then what happened over the years, because I saw all the, you know, the absolute rhetoric from the left just explodes. I mean, they've just taken a position, just like how traditionally the mainstream religious right would have taken over so many years of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and the very moment they actually started to embrace the whole idea of, we need to talk about misinformation, disinformation, and they started relating it to the Brexit referendum results in the Trump election. And I thought, do you know what? I am done with you. Um, with the I'll left, say, is that when you, because you said that you were centre left originally, and I'm not sure about the Scottish Libertarians whether you would describe them as left or right, but it sounds well, as if some of the the material that you were following was quite right wing. Do you think you changed from left to right, or did you just? Well, I was going to get to that, that because going through to 2018, 2019, I mean, some of the videos I started taking a look at included um, even pre-university videos. And I even took a look at some videos from the Scottish Liberty podcast as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's when I started looking up videos on truths about such and such, I started one day typing up about a truth about the SNP or even things that were going on in Scotland. 
I mean, 2018, I looked at this one particular podcast by Kev Baker, where he talked about certain things that went on in Scotland, because, well, enough of what's going on in England and the US and Canada. We need to talk about what's going on here. And I was quite shocked with what was going on. I looked into many of the things that were talked about. And um, going into 2019, when I thought the copyright directive was going to be done with, but unfortunately, it just got voted through in late 2018. But the final vote was coming up in 2019. We just didn't know when. And it was quite unpredictable because the EU elections were coming up that year. And I then started to arrange some, pro- I started arranging a small protest that took place at, at the top of Buchanan Street beside the Donald Dewar statue in Glasgow. And I tried to email in much of the media to talk about it when I was putting up posters on primarily bus shelters all over Western Bartonshire to help uh, get people's attention to attend the protest. And what was the protest about specifically? It was to mainly show our support in opposing the copyright directive. I mean, it's not just in Scotland, but it was all over the rest of Europe. I've seen Mm -hmm. there was large protests in Germany, as well as in Poland and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And it was a, it was quite a surprise, really, when I saw certain people, particularly in the mainstream centre-left, decide to go out there and oppose it. Because, mm-hmm. well, it's about freaking time you actually go out and start yeah. opposing all attempts to censor any form of speech. I mean, 2018, I also found out, uh, trying to see what happened with Count Dankel and the demonisation of him, oh, no. also didn't quite help with things as well. Um, but going back to 2019 with the protest, um, only about 12 other people showed up to the whole entire protest and the media wouldn't quite want to report on it. Mm. Um, But as soon as the EU, two days later, decided to completely go ahead and have many of its politicians in the EU Parliament vote in favour of Mm. the copyright directive, uh, that was at the very moment I just thought, right, that's it, I'm just getting out of my armchair now and just Mm -hmm. sign up to actually do something here. Because I can't just sit behind, I I can't just sit here on the sidelines any longer, I better just go out and do something here. Good. And so I ended up joining the party that time and start learning loads of things, even if it may have challenged my perspectives, but I ended up uh, getting to fully understand even the other sides of the arguments, and well, I didn't look back since. Mm-hmm. And I know that you've been very heavily involved in litter picking as well, and mm-hmm. do you think that is a sort of libertarian type of action, in that it's sort of taking your a community into your own hands, you know, taking the the responsibility for what's around you into your own hands rather than just expecting um, someone in authority to come and do it for you? Yeah, I would suppose so, yes, because um, in, in mid-2014, when I started, get, I started doing my first ever uh, activities involving voluntary letter picking up over to the State Woods, um, that land, ironically, overall is actually owned by the council, the local council, Western Bartonshire Council itself. Mm-hmm. And so from using some of the apps to report some of the waste and seeing how it's gone nowhere, you know, I thought I ended up thinking, right, that's it, I might as well just do something myself, even if it's just a small uh, form of opportunity. And I started getting involved and I realised there was a bigger task at hand. But my heart was telling me just keep on doing it and doing it. Um, but with regards to trying to get other people involved in uh, taking part in certain activities, I don't think there should be an amount of force included. No. Because, you know, unfortunately, if you tried to say to people, right, you better clean up or else, well, unfortunately, it just reinforces old forms of certain stereotypes involving that yeah. making like either you've dropped out of school and you have low grades or, or perhaps 
you've committed some sort of crime and you've been sentenced by the court to take part in some form of community service. Yeah. So ultimately it involves leading by example with your own forms of actions, even if people might not see, take you seriously at first, but then over the years when they see the actual difference come out around them, they'll start mm-hmm. actually going, well, do you know something? We actually should be doing something as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's happened recently in certain places, including up the Faithfully Nows. I mean, I've met a few people that have said, you know, I'm sick of all this rubbish that's being placed around here. I'm thinking of getting involved in Latifiking myself. And mm-hmm. my response to them was always would have been, yeah, go ahead. If you want to do that as an individual, then please do that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it's a great thing. And I think um, you're so right saying that it's not not something that anyone should be coerced into. But there's quite a few uh, litter picking groups on Facebook that are coming up. And I've certainly seen people out in my local area where I've just moved to recently picking up the litter. So I'm certainly planning to go out. I've done it before on the mountains because I love mountaineering. But I really like the idea that if you're enjoying an area and you like the beauty of an area or if it's your community, you just do it to give something back and you're not just lo- sort of looking at your neighbours and saying well they're not doing it so I'm not doing it either you know it's mm-hmm. just it's like yeah. be the change yeah, and, with the opposite, phrase, yeah, and but... also with the very kind of phrase that you know I've heard many people in the west of Scotland say you know certain things that particularly I've heard over mainly Twitter and certain media stations like people would somehow say well I pay my taxes for the council to pick up so why enough should I pick it up I mean, it's that kind of uh, it's that kind of expectation that unfortunately ultimately leads to more latter areas. That's right. Yeah. And on the subject of taxation, then, what about what do you what are your feelings about taxation? Do you think that um, do we pay too much tax? Do the libertarians believe that we shouldn't be paying tax? We should just be paying charity, for example. Um, what do you think about the way that the tax is spent by the people who are already in power? Well, there's a mixture of uh, so there's a mixture of sectors within the political movement of libertarianism, and the things you've described with relying on charity instead, uh, fully instead of paying via taxation. I mean, that really is kind of more or less the anarcho-capitalist principle. But there are also plenty of people, myself included, who are kind of mainly leaning on to practically leaning on to being minarchist in certain mm-hmm. ways that the government should be there for certain things, albeit on a small leash. Instead right. of trying to get too big, um, it should be there for maintaining the military, the police, the courts, as well as even the emergency services and also maintaining the roads, right. um, as well as even at the moment, possibly for now, uh, taking away our waste should it be needed. Um, mm. But I do agree in some cases, particularly on the subject of rubbish, that you know, regulation should be sort of loosened uh, a little bit more to include private co- certain private companies to uh, compete and therefore have the price that they charge people lowered. So therefore, um, the burden of responsibility in the council to collect the letter ultimately gets reduced and they can try and save money. Mm-hmm. Um, but with regards to taxation in general, you know, morally speaking, you know, in my view, taxation is definitely a theft. Because mm-hmm. if you are relying on if you're relying on the philosophy of one to uh, forcibly hold a gun to someone's head and Therefore, tell them, right, give your money or else, well, that's theft. Because if mm. you and I were to try and do that to anybody else in real life, well, it quite rightly is going to be described as theft. And quite rightly, we'll get punished and thrown away in a cage full mm-hmm. of rapists, uh, thugs, thieves and murderers and even terrorists. Yes, so I mean, there are people who... the government do the same? 
Yeah, I know that there are people who refuse to pay tax because they know that some of it goes to armaments. And maybe if they are anti-war, if that's the part of their philosophy, their actual religion, there are some people who, Quakers, for example, some types of Quaker, Quakers who don't pay tax as a protest, really. But um, when you think about the types of things that taxation is spent on, I mean, we, we've got this kind of ongoing proxy war in Yemen. So really, we are paying for that through our taxes. We are paying for the armaments that are sold to Saudi Arabia that bomb Yemen. Oh, yeah. Also, in the current uh, COVID situation, whatever you think about it, there is a lot of propaganda going on. So when I go into the centre of town in Glasgow, I see these big posters everywhere advertising certain attitudes towards the current situation. And I think, well, I'm actually paying for those ads through my tax taxation. And also there's been several um, corruption um, cases going on to do with PPE, for example, and, um, you know, government ministers who are linked to have family members who are linked to offshore companies dealing with PPE. And again, that's involving our taxation. So when I think about that, I think, yes, just as you say, this minicist idea, I think, sounds a great one that you have smaller government taxation pays for the essential services. But I do think it goes too far when we're paying for these kind of corrupt type sort of things or propaganda yeah, no, I absolutely agree because, you know, from when I listed about where priority tax really should be prioritised, it's not prioritised in the right areas. I mean, there's not just, as you've quite rightly highlighted, the fact that the taxation is going towards the military, particularly if it's involved in certain places, involves in certain places like the Middle East. Um, but well, mainly if the UK military is directly involved in certain places like Syria, as it has been over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the way we end up sending armaments to certain places like Saudi Arabia. I mean, let's yeah. face it, at this rate, they can look after themselves, honestly, with all the weapons that they've got. But then there's also been uh, taxation, particularly with the TV licence as well. I'm absolutely mm. fundamental against any kind of tax that involves owning certain things. I mean, we don't have to pay tax, thankfully, for owning computers, for crying out loud. No, um, not yet, anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, but... To try and pay your taxation for a well, what's supposed to be a corporation that's designed to, in return, meet the demands of the consumer to produce what they want, including certain TV or radio shows. And it doesn't always do as you please. And we've been seeing it definitely over the years with its biased coverage on mm-hmm. so many things. And it's yeah, even been, including... as I've seen, separate you know, seeping into the entertainment industry. I mean, that's another thing that we need to discuss Mm. Um, when particularly after Brexit happened, I thought, yeah, you know, honestly, it's understandable that some people, if they wanted to be feel passionate about their other side of the vote, want to let their feelings be known, then yeah, it is going to be expected, especially if some certain divisive competition happens and, mm-hmm. you know, they have to take time to recoup. But unfortunately, that's not what happened. It just kept on continuing and continuing and continuing. Mm-hmm. And it's helping to influence a lot of young people unfortunately it's almost like on the basis of being sort of similar to the lead up to how people would have wanted to be in the Chinese Cultural Revolution mm-hmm. in the late 1940s all the way through the 50s into the 60s mm-hmm. and you know, that's what worries me the most if people are going to be told right your best pal if they voted leave they're a big threat to you and yeah. they're a big threat to everybody else around you you know even if it's just inserted subtly and um, that greatly worries me about how they're going to end up 
if they, particularly if they don't think for themselves, how they react to other people. Yeah. And where is it going to lead? Well, it could lead to people being asked whether they've had the vaccination. And if not, then they're an outcast, a social outcast. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that situation The current, with the current talk of vaccine passports, lockdowns, COVID? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's absolutely fundamentally greatly against our freedoms and liberties, not just the lockdowns, but particularly, especially the mandated use of face coverings as well as even face visors because I got told in my uh, workplace one time, albeit just in a voluntary job in Jim Chapel, mm-hmm. that um, we had to, it's either we had to wear a face mask or face visor. I mean, the first was going to be voluntary, but then somehow the rules got changed from mm-hmm. the top. Um, you know, it is absolutely detrimental to the freedom of the individual. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did do a small calculation of the survival rate of COVID-19, hopefully it doesn't get you banned from some places. Um, throughout 2020, I'd calculated that in total 6,503 people died according to the official National Records of Scotland statistics when they recorded all the deaths, mm. uh, albeit weekly during that time. And is that I, all the deaths? Well, I, I just basically, I made it be faced up to the pop, total population count for 2019, which was and um, 1% of the population would therefore equal close to about 55,000 and 0.1% would be around about uh, just close to 5,500 and because I mentioned the number earlier 6,503 then somehow it's like going to be likely that the number uh, would be somewhere along the the death rate would be somewhere along the lines of 0.11% or 0.12% of the population, which would therefore mean a survival rate of 99.88% or 99.89%. Albeit that's just me and my view. Some people have their other theories. I mean, some people would do their own forms of calculations, do their forms of research, and they can see you know, exactly what the reality is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's one thing, particularly in the libertarian world of things, I mean, some people, most of us would say, well, you know, if a private company wanted to tell us customers, right, if you want to go into our premises, you better wear a face covering, you better wear gloves, or even wear a hazmat suit, etc., then it's their right to do it. Mm-hmm. But customers ultimately can have the right, compared to when the government forces every single company to do their bidding, mm-hmm. uh, to seek, to basically seek their products elsewhere and tell, send a message to the company saying, no, we're not going to have this whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Albeit, unfortunately, you know, there are plenty of people who enjoy the especially the new rules and regulations and they unfortunately can get quite an excitement out of just report telling on and reporting anybody and everyone that decides to violate them so mm-hmm. unfortunately that makes for a difficult situation so in some ways it's bringing out the worst in hu- human nature i think as well as in it, some cases the best but it greatly is bringing out the worst in many people um albeit this i'm quite lucky that in the street i live in in the east end of Dumbarton and still to this day nobody has yet to even get reported to the police whatsoever and yes you know just as how Lawrence Fox uh, said on an interview with Dave Ribbon of the Ribbon Report um, about a few weeks ago um, well they might perhaps come out you know and clap like a seal to you know clap for the NHS because more doubt they've been told to by the mainstream media and the government because if you look clearly that that's the case Um, 
But uh, they'd also put signs up saying with the rainbows on it, saying, stay home, stay, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Um, but then they would just have many people over and get physically affectionate with them, particularly for their family members or certain other friends of theirs. Um, so most of the time they don't really seem to kind of give us stuff and I'm quite lucky. But unfortunately I've known seven other places where I've known uh, some of our family members' friends tend to live. And unfortunately it tends to be, it tends to be quite a tense situation living in those places. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's one particular case whereby um, one pe- one person that we knew has a pet ferret and each and every night they have to take their pet ferret for toilet walk and they always take the responsibility to pick up the pet's excrement if needed. Um, But unfortunately, one of their neighbours spotted them going out and about and decided to falsely report them for supposedly being in their presence. Goodness. Um, And they decided to report them to the police and the police had to end up dealing with this particular person. And so, particularly with the lockdowns and the way they're enforced along with the other rules and regulations, it is completely clear that... Now, it's now shown, and it's the beginning really of it, that government can get way too huge mm-hmm. and just rule over people's lives. Mm-hmm. So the libertarian principle on it is that if you want to wear a face mask, if you want to wear a face visor, if you want to wear gloves, or even go to the extreme of wanting a hazmat suit with even a gas mask on, then that's your choice. Yeah. I mean, if I was in a certain situation whereby if I physically seen lots of people dropping dead, around me because of any kind of virus whatsoever, you know, I'd be the kind of person that'd be wanting to be wanting to put on a face covering or gloves mm-hmm. or even hazmat suits with a gas mask to try and protect myself and my family. Yeah. So people ultimately should be free choice. So therefore it sort of explains why we're not really in favour of wanting to ban face coverings no. or you uh, just want, to, want Scotland to be a free country. Yeah, ultimately, that should be the case. Which is what I thought it was, actually, until a few years ago, I suppose. Yep. What about lockdowns, then? Do you think lockdowns are a good policy for controlling a pandemic? Well, at first, it was given the good idea that, OK, maybe it could control. Me and my family did comply to with the regulations in place. Um, but when we started seeing that the cases were still going through the roof and the government was continually trying to make excuse after excuse, still to this day, actually, to mm-hmm. see if we can just go on a bit longer and see if we get things down. Oh, what's this? Cases are going up. We need to go back in the lockdown. Mm-hmm. It's quite clear, really, that lockdowns really aren't working. And with all honesty, certain countries like Sweden and Belarus have done much more better in dealing yeah. with COVID-19 itself. And, you know, the main uh, mantra in those countries was that, yes, we have all this advice that you should wear a face covering, particularly if you're indoors, you should keep your distance away from people. If you show symptoms, don't go near anybody. Um, But with that said about COVID-19, unfortunately, with the way the symptoms have been uh, described as well as even expanded, unfortunately can be easily mistaken for the likes of a common cold or a bad flu, especially in the winter. Mm. I mean, I ended up suffering from what I believe was covid in March of 2020. 2020, yes. A few people had it then, I think. I I ended up having not just problems, and I thought, okay, this is just going to, okay, here we go again, it's going to be another cold and flus, and I thought, okay, at best, because I would normally go to and attend a small church, it's a Baptist church in the north in Alexandria, then because the majority of the people who attend services are elderly parishioners, I mean, okay, 
fair enough, may as well just stay away yeah. to help control the spread of this virus. And I ended up getting problems with real bad problems with my chest as well. Mm-hmm. And I felt for the first time ever in my well then 25 going into 26 years of living on the planet that I felt I had pneumonia. And mm. it got so bad, I mean, my mum ended up suffering the same. Yes, that I think we ended up having to pour boiled water into, had to pour boiled water into a sink and put tills overheads and breathe in mm. the, the steam and just cough up every single amount of mucus that there was. And just cough up. I mean, it's not funny, really, trying yeah. to look back on uh, the virus itself. I mean, we can sympathise with people who have had it as well as those who have ended up dying from it. You know, yeah. as you would always expect from colds and flus every single year. Mm. But the way the narrative is being shaped is that because you've suffered from this particular form of virus, you therefore are supposed to think a certain way and saying, mm-hmm. well, I've suffered from this virus, people better obey these you know, GD rules or else. There's a lot of logical fallacies around, I think. Well, you can keep away. So, well, it reminds me sort of really of a particular clip I viewed from this 1990s cartoon show called Hey Arnold, when it showed this particular character who was so afraid of germs that he would do anything to keep away from germs and keep away from people. And he would lock himself up in his bedroom. And over time, as shown in the cartoon, a lot of the germs would instantly, no matter how much he would board up his windows and keep the door closed, and all the germs would just completely just slip through the doors and the windows and it eventually just get him. Yeah. And unfortunately, no matter what you try and do, even yeah, it's understandable if you are vulnerable and don't want to catch it. Mm. And unfortunately, you will always in life catch any form of bug or virus. Yes. And your immune system is there um, mm. to fight back and deal with it. Yes, and, that's the way I'd always understood things, that our immune system is there to protect us and we can build that up by eating a good range of foods and getting into contact with other people. Mm-hmm. I always understood that it was the isolated communities like the Pacific Islands in, in the old days. They were the ones that they hadn't been into contact into contact with other people from other countries. So they were the ones that were sadly decimated when diseases like colds and flu appeared because they didn't build up that immunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm not an expert, so... I just think that um, the measure, the measures that have been taken to beat this disease have been totally disproportionate. So, Yeah, ultimately, the policy of the party that I'm standing for really is just to help end these lockdowns. And not really, oh, understandably, some companies may put policies in place whereby they'll say, well, as of now, we're not going to, we're no longer going to allow uh, customers to wear face coverings or face visors, uh, particularly if their main excuse reasonably is to say that they want to prevent any kind of robbery going on in the store, because robbers themselves would always want to put a mask around themselves mm-hmm. or even helm- motorcycle helmets on, so therefore no, they can't be identified on the CCTV cameras that yeah. are in the stores. So yes, there can be understandably precautions in place. But it won't, st- it, don't, it won't really stop some companies from wanting to say, you know, look, because we want to protect people, we want to keep these policies in place. That should have been the ultimate decision by the state to just leave it up to the individual companies, no matter how small, medium or large, mm-hmm. to just do their own policies, really. 
Mm. I I often wonder what kind of um, health problems might be caused by people wearing masks and breathing in carbon dioxide for such long periods and whether um, companies that enforce that could end up with lawsuits on their hands. But I suppose that's that's another subject, maybe. Well, I did end up seeing one particular study that was done last year or research, really, that showed that masks um, especially don't really work when they're wet. And considering that the country that we live in has all these, you know, rainy, wet weather, especially when you go out to certain places like going to the shops, going to the transport or even visiting or people going to work, mm-hmm. um, you are probably going to be inevitably hit with rain, especially yeah. in the winter or maybe perhaps in the form of thunder showers in the summer if they mm-hmm. come around. So people need to know that. I mean, I've also witnessed them myself. If people go out and about in the rain, um, wearing their masks then not only would the pro- not only would the problem of keeping out the the viral particles themselves no matter what get worse but they're ultimately over time just in the long term really because it's not really in the short term their breathing ultimately would start to get affected mm. so that's where concerns you know genuinely do need to be raised yeah it really doesn't seem very hygienic to me um but what it does is uh, it perpetuates the idea that there's this big scary pandemic going on if everyone's wearing masks it perpetuates this emergency feeling among the population yeah it's I almost think, like the whole yeah. climate emergency thing really whereby yeah. you know because the media many others keep on saying those words out loud and they keep beating you over the head with that then somehow therefore it's real and most people will actually take it as they see it and it's the same thing when they say, oh, there's a pandemic on, then it's a good way of not only reinforcing the narrative that's being prescribed and what's going on, but just like the whole thing with the climate emergency, um, it ends up instituting a new form of normality. And it's also used to shut down any form of conversation, no matter how mm. legitimate the person's yeah. views would be to uh, help reinforce the narrative. That may, And what potentially may challenge the narrative ultimately cannot be allowed. Right. So are you sceptical about the idea of climate change then, or is it specifically about man-made climate change? What do you think about that that issue? Well, I'm not denying that there are certain aspects of climate change that are that are created by humans, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, take, for example, what's been going on. I mean, I'm amazed that it's not quite been discussed until very recently with what's been going on with the Japanese government wanting to potentially want to pour radioactive waste that's built up in its Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean, completely this time enraging neighbouring countries like China and South Korea. I mean, mm-hmm. there have been protests going on there with people saying, don't you dump that into the ocean? Um, and what happened was that this plant got damaged by the March 2011 tsunami in Japan when it had a record high earthquake and it caused all this devastatingly tragic tsunami that killed so many people, mm-hmm. and particularly on the coast where Fukushima was located, especially in the northern section of Japan. That's right, yeah, that's horrific. Um, so um, there's also other problems really um, with regards to people who set things on fire, particularly if they set, um, if they decide to deliberately not quite look after the place and want to you know, keep a la- keep a land uh, as free as they see it, or even particularly the problem, as I've discussed earlier, of uh, litter. I mean, I kind of get outraged, really, when people say things like, oh, you know, we need to tackle plastic pollution. Well, there's not just plastic you've got to deal with. 
And mm. I'm speaking as an experienced letter picker. There's also cans you've got to pick up. There's also glass bottles, including uh, glass shards. We have a particularly bad problem on the beach beside Leaving Grove Park in the mountain with lots of glass shards mm. uh, washing up onto the beach every single day. It's and horrific, it, isn't it? And it can unfortunately cut uh, many people, turn children and dogs if they come into contact uh, with the glass shards. Um, so, and there's also been lately the problem, as has been, well, I kind of found it funny when it was advertised in Glasgow when I ended up going there for a sneaky cycle a few months ago, um, the problem of disposable face masks in entering oh, yes. into the ocean and oh, yes. wildlife, and even you know disposable what? gloves. Yeah, there's disposable face masks and dis- disposable dog poo bags. I don't know if anyone's come up with a, rec- a recyclable or a biodegradable dog poo bath- bar- uh, bag yet, but you see these plastic dog poo bags in beautiful areas. I mean, it's just ter- horrible. I'd rather just have the, the actual manure there. Well, ultimately, as I discussed earlier with the, well, the idea that government should be reduced in size, then ultimately you let the free market and the people that really want to make a difference in how things are done actually come up with good innovations. Mm -hmm. And once people actually see those good ideas coming about, then obviously they'll naturally tend to lean towards those ideas. Then they'll lean towards them and say, this is a good thing, we've got demand going there, and eventually with supply being met, there can be an equilibrium being uh, being met, and eventually you get cheap prices. Mm-hmm. that people can enjoy with that particular product. Right, so that sounds um, absolutely wonderful. I mean, is this your idea of how the economy would work then if you're in an ideal world? Um, yeah, ultimately, that's always how it should have been, yeah, mm-hmm. how it worked. Um, particularly um, going on to the, I tend to controversially discuss, and I've always seen the good point side of the minimum wage arguments, mm. Um, it also kind of applies when the government tries to enforce a maximum wage, as what most people tend to fear if the minimum wage is gone. Um, when you actually, de- well, it then starts to really intervene in the cycle of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Um, if it, I mean, not, naturally, there's always a cycle whereby you know if there's less supply, then prices usually tend to go up, and the you know the company or employer selling those products has to then say, well, we've got to cut back a little bit. We need to make sure we get the supply up to date. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when the demand and the supply is able to be met with the equal demand again and the equilibrium is met, then that's when things can return to some form of normality. And it always has done. Mm. But when you start to intervene by saying, look, we need to set a good minimum price you've got to pay to mm. the people that are, uh, making sure they go out of the way to sell their labour for you, mm. then it just makes it ultimately makes the long term end of the cycle just even worse. And mm-hmm. that's ultimately what we see also with regards to central banking. Yes, uh, I was just thinking about that subject with the central banks, and they yeah. seem to be coming becoming more and more powerful in recent years. Ever since the two two thousand and eight crash, I think. Yeah, it's quite obvious, really, because. Um, many people, unfortunately, don't really tend to go into the taboo subject of what's well, being deemed taboo, really, about what would happen if we went back to some sort of standard, including like a gold or silver standard, or mm-hmm. even with decentralized forms of currencies, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, for example. 
And it ends up really driving me nuts as well when even still to this day, certain members of the mainstream pro-independence movement don't therefore try to bother in saying, look, here's the kind of currency that we want, especially with regards to Bitcoin, uh, silver and gold. Mm-hmm. And they don't really try to discuss it at all. I mean, some people even have the audacity to claim, well, you know, deficits are a myth. Well, if there is no deficit, then there would not be such a thing as inflation or deflation whatsoever. Prices yeah. would always be the same. And unfortunately, potentially supplying what you want may end up particularly quickly running out. Mm-hmm. So, and whenever, the, and every time, as we've seen with the last particularly few years, especially with the recessions that went on, Whenever the central bank always puts in a bubble, like the dot-com bubble in 2000, or even with the 2008 financial crisis, when they build up too much credit, there's always going to be the inevitable correction in the process. Mm-hmm. And even if, no matter how much the government will always try to intervene, even as I've read through some of Ron Paul's books over the years, mm-hmm. um, ultimately there's always going to be the correction. And mm-hmm. I generally have a feeling that the way the lockdowns have went, uh, albeit the government's trying everything that can to keep things alive with well, taxes, including furloughs, mm-hmm. um, ultimately it's not going to stop the inevitable. And what happens when they stop all the they stop all the furlough as well as stopping all the handouts to mm-hmm. any form of business that there is? Well, of course you're going to see a big blooming crisis. Yeah, and that'll end up making the 2008 crisis look absolutely tame. That's and right, and I remember. That's I think, been yes, I think um, it was Gordon Brown who famously said that he was going to put an end to boom and bust just before the big 2008 crisis. Um, and it's and, and I I can see both sides of the argument: the argument that we should be on the gold standard, and the argument that no, we should have monetarism, monetarism with the central banks, and that central banks are meant to be able to ride these booms and busts. They're meant to be able to affect the money supply and sort of keep it at um, a manageable level. But I get the impression that this system has just been utterly corrupted, and that there are so many people. There there are groups who are doing sort of in, insider dealing within all of this. Who knows who they are, really? And there's people who are manipulating it for their own ends. And that can actually go and in, fall into the crypto market as well. That market can be uh, manipulated. So it's really, it, it, there's this morass of corruption going on, in my opinion. Well, the way central banks operate, really, is that if you take out, well, the way the gold standard was set was that if you try to take out any form of loan, particularly when you sit, when you end up spending money or lending out money, you've ultimately got to pay it back with some sort of value, especially with either gold or silver, or even mm-hmm. if some people are brave enough to do this with Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, when you take away the idea of any kind of value, including gold, silver, or Bitcoin, I maybe should have used the word commodity to describe it, because it really is a commodity. Yeah. And you replace it with nothingness, especially with debt well inevitably you're going to get more and more debt and you then soon have to find that you're going to have to find something else you've got to pay back to that particular central bank in the process doesn't matter which one it could be where would be the bank of england in the uk or the federal reserve in the united states ultimately you will or even the european central bank in the european union you Mm -hmm. ultimately will have to pay back what you're owed to the central bank on interest Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, austerity inevitably does come in to 
uh, does come into factor what you will need to do in order to pay it back. And well, the more you continue to loan and loan and loan, well, the more stuff, as is common sense, commonsensically known, the more stuff you will ultimately have to give away until you're left with nothing, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's another um, financial idea that interests me, and that's the idea. It's not so much more of an an economic idea that capitalism um, is built on scarcity, that you um, buy goods when they're cheap and then you sell them when they're high. And it's all about trying to make something scarce in order to make it valuable. And that is the way that our society operates. And I just get the, the idea... Well, the impression that certain things are becoming more and more scarce um, during this crisis. For example, um, public libraries have been closed, so it means that people can't borrow books. And small businesses have been closed, so it means that you're forced to buy from these big multinational suppliers. So I feel as if we're all being shunted into a kind of manufactured scarcity. And I know that there's a lot of sort of, I suppose, anarcho-capitalist ideas around that, or maybe anarchist, agorist ideas. I'm not sure how that would fit in, What, how the libertarians would see those ideas. Well, ultimately, what you described in terms of the kind of capital, so-called capitalism you described actually is called corporatism. In, yes, in which, that's therefore, there's true, reg- yeah. Because there's regulations involved with the government getting involved, and mm. particularly how the big corporations themselves would actually be able to not only afford but able but also go around these regulations. Mm-hmm. So therefore and therefore it ends up limiting other forms of competition and pushing them out of the way. You it's know, like crony we, capitalism, yeah. That mainly is the the main crony version of capitalism whereby mm-hmm. whereas if you allow the free market to express itself, especially when it comes to the real forms of capitalism, right. then other sectors other sectors of the market can see the demand that there is and people if they invest their time and money into things, will actually be able to step in and meet that demand. It's just, right. unfortunately, with so many rules and regulations around that chances are you and I, even to this day, don't quite know and still get surprised that they exist, then it ultimately, sto- it ultimately stops uh, healthy competition from emerging. Yes, yeah, so the, the true free market is being regulated out of existence. I, I like to think that... This kind of corporatism, that is a really good way of putting it. It's not so much capitalism, it's corporatism or crony capitalism. Um, It would see uh, everything as a pie and that everyone needs to get a slice of the pie and everyone's fighting for their slice. Whereas I see the way the economy should be run as the way you might see a fruit tree, that it blooms, an apple tree blooms in autumn, uh, blossoms in autumn, and then you get lots of apples, more apples than the person who owns that tree could eat. So... You could distribute that or you could give it to people. But if people then hem that off and say, you're not allowed to go into that orchard because that's that's the government's orchard, that seems to be what's happening at the moment. And mm-hmm. that is making things scarce. It's make, creating this false pie that everyone gets a tiny slice of. And it's the opposite of the abundance of natural growth. That may, might sound a bit waffly, but that's the way I, I see things at the moment. Yeah, and this is where I've described with the free market and how it really genuinely should operate, is mm. that people should have, therefore have the opportunity, if they see that um, other forms of trees that they see, including the orchards that are selling all the good apples to the people mm-hmm. around them, um, are not always being, are always meeting up with the demand, then therefore potentially they should have the opportunity to be able to say, hey, we'll, we'll, hey do you know what, we'll grow our own tree. We'll be able to 
grow our own forms of apple tree. We'll be able to help feed our neighbours around us and even mm-hmm. as well as ourselves. So and then there was the heritage the seeds law that was going to be put, yeah because remember there was going to be a heritage seeds law that you weren't allowed to save your own seeds so there's always some way of saying no you can't grow your own food you know and again that's that regulation coming into play mm-hmm. yeah and it's especially the case when you think about certain things and certain plants that are regulated like cannabis for example mm-hmm. um it's quite ironic really that so much of the time the drug is just criminalised and I controversially have the opinion that every time I hear somebody therefore being busted with cannabis uh, and whether it be the loft or in their basement, mm-hmm. I often think to myself, dang, they could have got themselves out of poverty. Yeah. Um, but the reason the prices of uh, cannabis and hemp itself are always kept high essentially is because they're regulated. Yeah. Nobody's allowed to actively explore and see what they're like. And if they don't like the plant itself, they can just simply not buy it. I mean, yeah. that's that's really the way uh, the free mar- those taking part in the free market itself can participate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ironic, really, that there's so much regulation, but unfortunately in the UK, we tend to be like one of the most highest exporters of cannabis itself. There, there is some freedom lately, as has been over the years with regards to hemp, but mm-hmm. there's still restrictions in place with regards to owning a license, especially e- as well as even selling some forms of CPD oil. So mm-hmm. ultimately, you know, those those restrictions ultimately need to come to an end and people need to be able to actively see and explore uh, those sectors of, well, of the economy if it was allowed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because hemp actually has so many uses and I buy the hemp seeds and make them into ice cream. And I must point out that they don't have any sort of hallucinogenic properties, mm-hmm. but they're super healthy. And you can grow them in Britain, except you have to have a license in order to grow hemp. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that whenever there's a kind of cheap product that has very good medicinal properties, there seems to be a lot of re- regulation around it. Um, same with iodine. Iodine's not regulated, but there are a lot of warnings about taking too much iodine, vitamin D, um, things like that. And yet... There's all this talk about the vaccine again, coming back to the vaccine, mm-hmm. which companies are making huge profits out of. I mean, what do you think about this? Because it is actually a massive experiment that's being conducted on the people who are taking it, mm-hmm. who are being vaccinated with the COVID vaccine. Well, if you take into account many things that we discussed earlier, I mean, same thing with anything else. You know, have you, I'm not really totally anti-vax per se, Mm-hmm. You know, I personally, you know, I personally myself wouldn't try, quite try to take any form of vaccine unless maybe, for example, I'm going over to any kind of certain tropical countries like third world countries that yeah. have loads of problems, including more diseases that are probably are we've all in the state more worse and more immediate to your threat, an immediate threat to your health than COVID or flu itself. And so it's quite understandable when you would want to take a vaccine just to go there and be able to travel and not quite get too get too gravely ill or end up in a hospital in those countries, mm-hmm. which are not always that to run that well compared to even places like here. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, you know, free choice should be in place uh, with regards to vaccines, and ultimately there should be free forms of debate. I mean, I have seen some heartbreaking stories over the years when I've dared to do my research and look onto the free, still free for now, website, World Wide Web. And there are people out there who do have uh, concerns as well as questions raised about vaccines, especially if they if it affects their children. Mm-hmm. And 
Ultimately, as with any product itself you buy from a company, if it ends up hurting you when it should not be, then you should be able to sue that company and yeah. take it to court and get compensation. But right. unfortunately, with the way things are going with vaccines lately, I mean, it's sort of related to, at least in my view, to a document that was released back in 2012 by the World Health Organization called the Global Vaccination Action Plan. Mm. Uh, many governments, many health boards around the world come under, uh, and actually to this day, are coming under increased huge amounts of pressure to make sure that lots of people, including everybody, is vaccinate, given a vaccine to protect themselves against any form of uh, disease that there is out there. Mm. And ultimately, in the document itself, it has to be sold as if uh, it's somehow a human right if you were to be given this vaccine. But ultimately, the main definition of what's supposed to be a right or a human right doesn't even involve being forced to do something at all. Mm. And if you're forced to take some take any product, including a vaccine, then it ultimately sort of ends up breaching your human your human rights. Yeah, because it is putting something in your body. So in a way, if it's against your will, that's a form of assault. Mm-hmm. And getting back to you know when I was talking about uh, climate change earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, as I discussed with the free mar- with you about the free market, uh, the plans on how people should tackle climate change, particularly with government intervention, it's not really going to work out well. In fact, mm-hmm. when you try to set, as we've seen in history, if you try to centralise more and more power, it doesn't always lead to good outcomes. Mm-hmm. And you know, both uh, in terms of freedom and liberty, as well as even in some cases like the Soviet Union, for example, in Easter, as well as in places in Eastern Europe or even in China, uh, not always a good, not always for the greater good. Um, environmentally, something. I mean, it's been recorded there's been even more pollution in those places in mm. order to keep a country functioning and therefore give you the power uh, to switch on the TV or your radio in your house, mm. or even switch on your lights, or even just be able to get the food, get the food and drink required for yourself and your family. Mm. So. You know, that's why the free market ultimately needs to step in. People can and should innovate. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things we would like to see is that ultimately, as has been commonly discussed throughout many people in the mainstream left over the years, you know, there should definitely be less restrictions on what kind of energy source you should use to power your house. I mean, if you want to be the kind of person that wants to power your house with wind turbines or solar panels, or even be able to collect your own water instead of relying on the main supply main supply of water that you get from the tap, then mm. that ultimately should be up to you as an individual to do that. I mean, yeah. I could go controversially briefly into the point whereby if people want to try any kind of form of energy, particularly in the way that Nikola Tesla uh, tested out his forms of energy, um, mm. yeah, they should have a right to do that. They shouldn't be told by the government have any kind of... Uh, uh, goons from the government deciding to show up on their property and take away their form of energy if they want to be able to power their own property. Mm-hmm. Is the government not encouraging these alternative forms of energy, though? Well, it doesn't always just encourage the forms of alternative energy, but ultimately it intervenes mm-hmm. in how these things can come about with passing any kind of new laws and regulations, which mm-hmm. still ultimately keeps out competition from people that actually want to come up with genuine new alternatives. I mean, some people have witnessed over the years um, come up with new alternatives, such as uh, biofuels, along with mm-hmm. 
um, coming up with certain forms of ethanol or even if they use uh, algae as well because that's a new thing that's out there that people mm-hmm. want to power uh, vehicles with. Ultimately, they should be left to just experiment and innovate with mm. these things. As long as they're not endangering other people's safety, though, that's the other thing. That if your yeah, neighbour's experimenting with an alternative form of energy that could blow up your house, then that mm. might be a bit worrying. Yeah, it understandably would be a bit worrying. And yes, you would have every right to take that neighbour to court and just sue them for all the damage that they've caused towards you. Mm-hmm. So... What about um, the state of politics in Scotland then? What do you think that the political, the Scottish political system is serving the Scottish people at the moment? Um, to some extent, yes, it is. But unfortunately, I've got the feeling over the years that the politicians, especially when you think about how recently the controversial now hate crime and public order of Scotland Act mm-hmm. ended up being uh, produced and then passed, um, it gives the feeling really that the politicians, not just here in Scotland, but in the UK as well as the EU, you know, just don't really listen to the general population mm. uh, whatsoever, especially those kinds of people that really, even if they're not too crazy in their minds, want to have their basic freedoms and liberties maintained as well as even returned in some ways. Yeah. So in some ways, uh, talking about from the Scottish perspective, um, we do have some forms of devolution we can talk, we can uh, vote in many things and create laws, particularly on property as well as even on taxation, especially income taxation. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it's not the full way. And therefore, that's why I kind of support the idea of independence, because if we have our own right to be independent and sort out our own problems in our own house, then therefore, that's the best way to go about things. Mm-hmm. If you're relying on somebody else, particularly a third party, to yeah. do it for you, then it's not always going to be that's not always going to be good at all. It doesn't always lead to uh, good outcomes. Mm-hmm. And with regards to how the MSPs themselves tend to take the Pledge of Allegiance, because I ended up making an article about it, um, albeit formerly from Steamit, but I've had to go elsewhere to some other place like Live Profile. I think I remember that name, and I probably will leave it as a note uh, towards you in the message later. Um, the way our MSPs take the Pledge of Allegiance, and it sort of applies to the MPs in England as well in Westminster, is that they take the Pledge of Allegiance, which sort of, if you look back into the history of it, goes back all the way to the Promissory Oaths Act of I think it was 1868, when the old school Pledge of Allegiance you had to take was that you had to say, you know, I pledge allegiance to protect Queen Victoria, her heirs and successors according to law. Mm-hmm. And if you look on the live streams and any of the parliamentary openings, that is what you will see most of the right. MPs doing. Not once is the people ever mentioned in any of those speeches whatsoever. Although the MSPs so press- kind of for now have the right to say in a separate statement, yeah, we're for the people. We don't always agree but with that particular statement that's there. We hope it gets changed. So you're but pledging allegiance to the royal, the British royal family, basically. Unfortunately, many of those MSPs do. Now, mm. What I want to see greatly shaken up is that uh, section se- basically Section 7 of the Scotland Act 1998 needs to be taken out mm. and Section 4, uh, Article A of it, needs to be rewritten, needs to have the Pledge of Allegiance rewritten. Uh, so, I mean, I've kind of come up with a new version, sort of in the way that's uh, sort of similar to how many of the politicians in the United States would take the Pledge of Allegiance, but ultimately 
you know, things would need to be changed. So ultimately, we are in a very equal society. Mm-hmm. And not in the kind of way that the so-called woke mob would want. Mm. Do you think we really, um, do you think that's possible? Because I always feel that maybe the whole idea of wokeism and the whole, when you get things like the, the acts like the hate, hate speech bill going through, it's always sold as something that's really um, protecting people. But there's always a sinister side as well, which is really kept, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, is more covert and there's always this impression that we're an equal society but actually we're very very much under the royal uh, I don't know so much control but I don't think it would be very easy to detach that um, pledge of allegiance from even if we had an independent Scotland. Um, Well that would depend at what the new what the newly set up government would do I mean, mm-hmm. most of the t- some of them would probably most likely, well, I'd say likely they would want to probably be like Canada and the rest of the Commonwealth nations, except in mm-hmm. Africa, of course, because, you know, it doesn't have a constitutional monarchy whatsoever, but it's still a member of the Commonwealth, yeah. which is a very good thing. That's what we, that's what, you know, I personally would want to see for Scotland yeah. if we did get independence. But ultimately, I mean, the Constitution yeah. needs to change because... Um, the way we have our unwritten constitutions in the UK um, doesn't quite live up to scratch whatsoever, and it's n- done absolutely nothing to stop the government getting into our lives. Um, no, but with regards true. to certain things like the hate crime bill, when most people hear that just the name of certain laws, like "oh, we need to tackle hate crime," you know, they automatically always think, "Yeah, you know, you and I would always think the same." Mm-hmm. That. Right-thinking people should, would agree. Be, you know, verbal should be, you know, not just, you know, beaten up, not just verbally abused at in a horrific manner and stopped from going to any certain place, mm-hmm. including there, whether it be on public transport or any other kind of place they want, leisurely place they want to hang out in or they go to work. But they also don't want to be physically assaulted either just because of the basis of whatever identity that they've got. Mm-hmm. And so many people would always feel good in that moment and think, well, you know, we're making a difference here. We're doing something. Yeah. But via their their emotions ultimately come to the really at the downfall if the government itself in question were to whether it be local or national, were to exploit any kind of law that's put in place like the hate crime act or any kind of law that ta- deems to tackle any form of uh, hate speech or any kind of misinforming of people like misinformation mm-hmm. um, most people would sort of think in that moment of misinformation oh you know what you know we don't like certain scammers out there that are fleecing anybody uh, of their money they're misleading people i mean nobody likes to be misled mm-hmm. but when you dig deep into any kind of bill that's proposed or law that's there ultimately well, unfortunately there is a potential for central government whether it be local or national to actually abuse it and mm-hmm. even just lie about certain people it disagrees with and they can ultimately just use it to abuse their own power. Yes. I mean, and, there's a lot um, involved in that bill which could criminalise people just having a conversation, maybe saying something that they um, that could be misinterpreted, that they didn't mean to be, um, you know, uh, hate speech at all, but it could be interpreted by someone else as hate speech. And I mean, I think that's what we saw with Count Dankula, that he made what he thought was a funny video, 
Others took it in bad taste. He apologised for it, but he was still uh, arrested, taken to court and fined, despite um, apologising profusely. And that wasn't due to the hate bill. I mean, that was obviously, that was due to, I can't remember what law he was prosecuted on, but the well, hate it's mainly bill. Section, uh, section 127 of the Communications Act 2003. Right. That was this it, was yeah. the same law that helped to establish and set up uh, what we know now as Ofcom. I mean, there always used to be, you know, regulators of the media in mm. the UK throughout the years. I mean, especially since when the BBC was set up, and I think it was in the 1920s, it got mm. set up and it was monopolised at the time. But then things eventually got more and more freer. Right. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a lot of people, again, didn't understand what the Count Dankula case was about they just saw the headlines and condemned him on that basis of maybe a headline in the tabloid newspaper but the actual facts of the case were quite shocking really that you could try you could say something in maybe in poor taste as a joke apologize for it say that you didn't realize it was going to offend people you didn't mean to offend people and still actually get um, arrested reviled in the press lose your job you know, it's just it's just astonishing that that was allowed to happen. Yeah, especially if any particular you know set any particular subjectual word or remark ends up affecting somebody that especially happens to be of a certain listed protected characteristic or mm. uh, protected or listed ethnic, particularly ethnic uh, minority group, and in this case, or even religious minority group, in the case of Count Dankula, especially yeah. when. Uh, I think he then talked about one video whereby um, the police apparently decided to talk to the leader of the Jewish Council of Scotland, which is meant mm-hmm. to represent all the Jewish the, the concerns of the Jewish people that are living in Scotland. Right. And he decided to come out and say, "Look, this guy, this guy is bad. You know, we need to put him away." Mm-hmm. And because, therefore, the media latched onto it, and because this guy's voice is out there. People yeah. can get the impression that, oh my gosh, he's ended up offending every single Jewish person there is. Mm-hmm. That most, that no doubt, you know, many of those people who are Jewish, you know, have, you know, scarred memories of what happened back in Nazi Germany, especially with all the lead-ups with the persecution as well as leading but up to the Holocaust. But he did get a lot of support it. from Jewish comedians. I think he got a lot of support from. Yeah, he did from uh, David, David, yeah, David, yeah, David, David Deal in particular. Yeah. Um, who were saying that he was obvi- he was obviously joking and he wasn't intending it as hate speech. He was it was making a joke about his dog or his girlfriend's yeah. dog. And what's scary about it is that the government itself, particularly those in the courts in mm-hmm. that case, can ultimately try to shape the narrative and decide what is and is not offensive. Yeah. And um, ultimately, you know, offence is you know taken, not given. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, many people ought to understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And and the fact that this is we're moving towards a society where these things are criminalised. And I'm also very concerned about what's going on with Police Scotland at the moment. They've just had a consultation on something called the, the public contact and engagement strategy document. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's it looks not really heard of it. Someone um, pointed it out to me and I just thought it was a general consultation and it's written in such a way as to just send you to sleep. It's full of the this waffle. I, I focused on it in my last podcast, actually. It's 
um, all of these sort of um, inoffensive sounding terms and strategies and things. But then you get to the sort of meat and potatoes of it, which is the digital, the dedict, I think they call it digital ICT strategy. I can't even remember what this acronym stands for, but it's really about bringing in a surveillance state, bringing in um, digital policing in the form of things like uh, drones, which they call RPAS devices, um, even possibly AI, which could, I mean, they don't explain what these things actually are. It could um, get to the stage where we've got these sort of headless robotic dogs that they have in the States at the moment. Yeah, even uh, in places like Singapore, I've seen that happen as well. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, last year we had the case of the couple in the Peak District that were out walking their dog. In, and even in um, Derby my, as well. Yes, I think so. And they were um, filmed by a drone and shamed on social media. So yeah. it's if they're bringing all of this in at the same time, you wonder where we're heading. Yeah, effectively, if, that, if this really goes ahead, we really are heading into a surveillance state that the likes of George Orwell are going to be absolutely wincing at. Yeah. In fact, you know, many a time they'll be spinning in their graves and many people heading up to the next world would be probably getting lots of loud voices from it and saying, well, I told you so, should have mm. listened. Um, and I've even seen what's been happening lately in East Renfrewshire being trialled, especially with the police deciding to use drones to help try and monitor, well, anti-social anti use. Well, mm. mainly just people, particularly youths, that are going around, you know, just deciding to chill and have a party in mm. the park, albeit some of the main disadvantages, you know, every time a party happens outdoors is that there's always, you know, rubbish left behind. I mean, that's always been happening. Yeah. Even before the idea of COVID-19 came about and also lockdowns came about. And so, mm. yeah, it does drive people, including myself, nuts. But what's even more nuts is the idea of how you tend to enforce what's been going on. I mean, it's one thing if you're if you own a particular set of land and you want to perhaps not want people that you disagree with, particularly those that decide to infringe upon your land, um, be kicked off it. Mm -hmm. um, particularly if you want to say, look, this is a drone here. What's going on? Please, can you send somebody up here to uh, kick these people out? But unfortunately, mm -hmm. this is really a different a different case of well, it's public land. Yeah, will uh, be owned by the state. And unfortunately, the state's now basically doing everything to make sure that you're monitored in every way. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that there are good uses for this technology. I mean, obviously, if someone's lost in the mountains, for example, or lost in a remote area, drones can be invaluable. And the whole point is that anything new, any new technology that comes in has to be um, account. The, the police have to be accountable for this. We have to have a, um, safeguards in place. And I got the impression from this document that they were burying this at the back. It was all of these waffly words and waffly um, boxes and things which were meaningless until you got to page 31 I think it was and then they actually spelled out what they were doing as if they were mm -hmm. trying to hide it and it, this should be something that everyone should have a say about you want this technology but it has to be there has, there has to be public accountability in place. Yeah ultimately this is where you know before lockdowns would have been uh, in place you know, many people ideally would have wanted to raise any particular issue at any mm. Garrard uh, community hall meeting, uh, mm. should they want to raise any issue. Um, but unfortunately, because we've seen uh, centralisation over the years of the way things are reported in the media and how 
the government has been really handling things even leading up to the present day. Unfortunately, many people, you know, unfortunately, particularly here in the case of Scotland, are, mm. are particularly asleep and they just have no idea whatsoever. I mean, they have their own way of going about things in the world and they're basically in their own bubble and they don't even know and don't even, you know, pop their head outside the bubble even just once in a while to see what's really happening. Mm-hmm. And you think that this COVID situation has made that situation worse? Yeah, particularly, especially with the hive mind and things. Mm. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the very moment, um, I mean, I remember making one particular video when I ranted about the hashtag clap for NHS, uh, clap for carers event. And mm-hmm. I went on for 20 minutes and I described in the video how, you know, I support, you know, I do support the NHS in general along with the workers and how good of a job they do because I've seen how well they've done with some of my family members that I've had to go through certain operations over the years. Yes, I mean, my mum used here. to be, I mean, my mother used to be a student nurse in mm-hmm. Garden Naval Hospital in the early 1980s. And, you know, she's passionate about helping to make other people feel healthy and help them to live good, healthy lives and help make a difference. I mean, she, she mainly in part got that from the drive of being on the job. And, you know, no matter how much I said about how my family, I mean, even though one of my cousins works in, as an NHS nurse as well, mm-hmm. um, so we know what's going on, I still ended up getting slapped. I ended up saying, well, I disagree with the whole event itself and I voluntarily wouldn't be taking part. I still ended up getting huge amounts of negative feedback mm-hmm. from people just basically accusing me, saying, well, you're only just saying this because you just want people to die and you want any." It's a bit like the First World War and the White Feathers, really, that people are just, they're saying you should be out on the battlefields, you know, dying for the <laughs> the elites or whatever, you know. It's, well, it's, it depends it's, on how you even, it depends on how when fully analysing the war itself, yeah. um, whether the justification really does come in or whether it is for defending your country or if it's for doing something else. That's I mean, genuinely, when I look back on certain things like, you know, World War One, not quite as much of a good way as as in, let's say, World War Two. In World War Two, you know, it is how we t- defended ourselves against any invading nation was actually fully justified. But the way things have been going on, with especially not just with the wars that happened afterwards, with the likes of the yeah, ignore the phone in the background, the Korean War in the fifties. Yeah. As well as even the wars that have happened in the Middle East over the years. Yeah. Well, I could really, it's safe to say they're really anything but justifiable in terms of defence. Because let's face it, it's not your own land, it's not your own property. No. So if you wanted, to, I mean, if you wanted to voluntarily go over yourself to fight and do something, then you should as an individual. But, you know, what on earth are you thinking of doing, especially when a third party like the government tries to send literally every single soldier? Mm. over into that particular country or it could be anything really I yeah. mean it's not defence it's really just therefore fitting the definition of invasion absolutely absolutely it's just twisted everything seems to be twisted they say, they'll say it's defence but it's a bit in, invasion um, I think the governments like to rally that sort of wartime spirit because it's a great way for them to control things. And that's my personal opinion anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that you had had a problem getting into virtual hustings. What, why was that? Is it because there's certain criteria that you have to fulfill or do you think they were trying to keep your voice out or what was going on there? 
Well, particularly as we've seen over the last several months, really, and the year, whereby things have had to change, including elections. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way things have been done is that we no longer can go to any physical hustings whatsoever. We can't even have any street stalls whatsoever. I mean, the ideal thing I would have wanted to do if street stalls were allowed would have been not only to set up a stand where people can collect leaflets, Mm -hmm. but I was also planning to have a wireless speaker because I've got it upstairs in my room locked and ready to go with two separate VHF wireless microphones Mm -hmm. whereby I would have been doing my thing, just speaking into the microphone yeah, talking about a mixture of not just a load of rubbish, especially at the start, to help lighten the mood a bit, mm-hmm. uh, but also to talk about many serious issues and the way things should be raised. And once I'm done with that particular monologue, um, I'll be allowing every single member of the public to come up uh, to the microphone and just make their questions, be asked, and even debate me. Mm-hmm. The street. I mean, it's sort of like similar to what Sargon of Akkad did in right. 2019, the lead up to the EU elections. Okay, he didn't succeed. But I kind of admire him for actually trying because Mm -hmm. people generally have this idea that, oh, well, you know, typical politicians are just sitting there in their offices and not bothering to talk to ordinary people whatsoever, except maybe once in a while. But in the case of an election, if you're some ordinary person that wants to go into office, you can actually be on the street and actually allow people to come up to you face to face and actually ask you questions. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main things that should happen, but unfortunately it can't. So therefore, with the way things are going virtual, just like right now, we have to attend virtual hustings. Mm-hmm. And that mainly is up to third party organisations, particularly private ones or organisations, to help arrange that. Now, Time for Change, a guy on Butte itself, in the case of the 6th of April 2021. Well, it's a climate change activist group. And... Uh, I only just found out about it because I wasn't even informed via email about it because I would have thought, because being along with the other six candidates, you know, I definitely would have been informed. Mm. But unfortunately, I wasn't. And I checked on Twitter via the search button, it searched bar really, and I saw via the Helmsworth advertiser that mm. the event was coming up and I checked out the link to where the organiser was and I emailed the organiser saying, hey, I'm a candidate for the Martin constituency for this upcoming election. Uh, please, can you include me in this event? I think this was on the Sunday, the 4th of April, two days before. Mm-hmm. And the response I got from the organiser was to kind of prophetically say in their PR style writing, that, well, we would have invited you, but we just don't have, because of time constraints, we don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Even though with, I mean, it drove me, it shocked me really, mm-hmm. because... The way I've been going about in the Zoom meetings with other people, not just my mates, but um, include, but also other people in the party I'm with, it's quite easy to set up a Zoom meeting once you get the hang of it, and you can just send out the link uh, should you need that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Stop the War Coalition kind of does that in a good way. So, mm-hmm. therefore, why can't you know, Time for Change Girl and Butte? It I mean, seems a bit crazy to have a hustings and to say, well, we don't have time to interview all the candidates. Yeah, and of course, I ended up deciding to contact some of the other candidates, including uh, Tony uh, who, of the SNP, Tony Giugliano, uh, and also uh, Jackie Bailey of the Labour Party. And she mm-hmm. was particularly nice about it and said, yeah, I'll mm-hmm. raise that for you, particularly mm-hmm. at this meeting. And, there was, and it seemed to kind of work two days after because I got an email. And while they were still just not accepting me to the meeting whatsoever to be on a webcam with this microphone, I was uh, still told, please can you write 
your responses to the questions that we've provided, especially they provided it on the Eventbrite page. Mm -hmm. And so I happily did so. And they said that, well, we're going to read it out. We're going to share it with our group. Um, but unfortunately, it still hasn't even come up on places like Facebook whatsoever. Now, bear in mind, I've still yet to even view the replay mm. of the event to see if there was anything interesting. But I can only imagine that nothing's really uh, come up. Now, lately, with regards to the 26th of April peace hustings, I mean, I really offered to uh, go up onto that particular hustings as well, because one of my particular uh, subjects of interest is foreign policy. And I thought, yeah, I definitely want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. these particular hustings and explain you know my part myself and my party's stance on war and enforcing aggression as well mm. but unfortunately i was also told nope you can't come on to these hustings whatsoever um, and instead instead of really just doing writing um, i'd mainly just give my response in a no more than three minute video and mm -hmm. i did do that and hopefully the link should be somewhere i mean i've not even checked but i'll probably hopefully find it out there somewhere but unfortunately, you know, if any particular group, I mean, anybody can host something, particularly in interviews like this one. I mean, that's the good news in a free market. Yeah. But if people want to particularly rely on uh, places whereby they can all view and attend any form of debate that there is, then, well, unfortunately, if, when you limit the scope of debate, then mm. you limit the scope of where you limit the vision, really, of where mm -hmm. people even want to see even just from another side of the story. What so somebody thinks of this subject and how they agree or disagree, this other person disagrees. Mm. So it really just ends up setting the, the standard for just really limiting. Uh, it's a really sad comment on our times, I think, that the there's so much censorship, actual censorship going on these days. Um, and the, the debate on every subject is steered. I think they're trying to steer it, the establishment, they're trying to steer it their way. And of course, people like us are trying to break out of that. It's almost like a kind of cat and mouse game. And the idea that we're only meant to think in a certain way, I think, is very scary. Yeah, particularly when you think about the collectivist mentality. Mm. Um, if critical thinking is never allowed, then what replaces it automatically is the hive mindset, which particularly serves any form of collective. It doesn't matter whether it be an entire society or even just a small group in general. What ultimately happens in the collective mindset is you follow only the rules that the ever be existing or prescribed group tells you, even if it's unconscious towards you um, in, in terms of how to think and what to feel and what to do. And well, usually anybody that dares to try and raise above themselves above the water, even just mildly to question what goes on, usually, you know, as the old Japanese saying goes about, whichever nail sticks out above the rest gets hammered back down first well they always end up being pulled back down into the water it's a depressing thought really being pulled back down because really it pulls society down i think it, it completely dims creativity mm -hmm. if you all if you're all expected to think in the same way it's a very scary thought really yeah it is quite a scary thought even when you especially look back in history I mean, I recently got off from reading a few nights ago, uh, albeit the condensed down version of The Road to Serfdom by F.A. Hayek. Or oh, Freddy yes. Hayek. I haven't read that. I'm looking forward to reading um, it sometime. Most people, unfortunately, particularly if they're on the left here in Scotland, I've ended up finding out via some uh, research. They kind of kick off about it because, well, you know, Maggie Thatcher showed that book once at a conference yes. and posted <laughs> by 
uh, reading it. But again, as we've judged from every political leader that there is, just because you therefore proclaim you're doing something doesn't always mean your actions always live up to the standards of your words. No. Uh, and Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan in particular, they might yeah. talk a good talk about deregulation. To some extent, they did have deregulation, but unfortunately, as like many other politicians throughout the years, they continue to expand the government over and over again for mm -hmm. whatever reason that they want. So they don't always live up to what they say and what they promise. Yeah. Now, the book itself kind of highlighted the steps of well, when there's always chaos about and people demand something be planned at first. That's what always happens. Mm -hmm. um, things don't always go to plan. So they always then strive to find the strong leader. I mean, in mm -hmm. that case, Effie Hayek highlighted a strong man to lead everyone. And what happens is that people end up being fallen over to this strong man and they end up all of a sudden no longer questioning it, at questioning what goes on, especially with the problems and the way we have to solve them. And they then start pledging for more power from this particular strong man. Right. But what that ends up ultimately at the expense of uh, freedom and liberty is it ultimately takes it away in the form of, well, you better actually start talking about, you better really um, start obeying what what is imposed by this new leader. And mm. ultimately what it ends up leading to is, bam, before you know it, dictatorship. And therefore all your freedoms and liberties go away and pretty soon you find not just one particular section of how you go about your life is planned, but eventually everywhere is planned. Even yeah. your recreate the way you want to take part in your recreations gets uh, regulated. Yeah, everything gets regulated. I mean, it really sounds like a book I need to read. I have heard about it, and I just think what really depresses me is that even people within the anti-lockdown protest movement, they're saying we need a big, strong leader. People always look for a strong leader, but they never seem to look for the leadership within themselves, or they rarely seem to look for the leadership within themselves. And I think that's what I really like about um, what you've been saying, because you've actually gone out there and you've done litter picking. And I, I do like this. And, and I'm not really aligned to any particular political party. But what I like about the libertarian ethos is that you're a participant, you're a participant in things, you actually, you're actually responsible for your own security, happiness and things like that. You're not just looking to a leader to sort it all out for mm -hmm. you. Although you do obviously, um, you know, experts do have their part to play as well. And I think we have got this terrible feeling that we just cry out for leaders so much. But how many politicians, for example, I think I heard someone talk about this recently. How many politicians send they're populous out to war, but they would never think of actually fighting in a war themselves. Um, most, likely, most likely you'll find plenty, to be honest. Yeah. I think it's probably not uncommon knowledge yeah. uh, that this is the case. Yeah. How many I mean, politicians how many people, would be How many people would even want to enough? have, even like members of the royal family want to see if they could probably take part in getting a black belt or maybe something more in martial arts skills or take part in sword fights yeah. or even take part in machine gun fights or in a helicopter. Uh, by themselves or even a good uh, armoured jeep or yeah. with a gun in the back uh, yeah. should, anybody, should anybody try to invade uh, them and try to take over I mean probably not much I mean they yeah. most likely just expect everybody else uh, to do that I mean mm. that's the thing with regards to you, you mentioned about people in the lockdown, in the anti-lockdown movement uh, look up to certain people I mean yes no doubt Trump has done some good things but ultimately just like any other leader that there is 
you know, you've ultimately have to uh, see if you can be critical and call them out on certain mm-hmm. things. Yeah. I mean, Trump may talk a good talk on certain things like uh, freedom of speech, and I'm quite surprised he's even trying to take a stance from recent years, albeit when he was probably uh, likely to get kicked out of the White House, mm-hmm. and he had to do that. Um, he may talk a good talk on certain things like the Second Amendment, particularly if you want to have the right to self-defence, to protect your, pro- your life, liberty and property from violent criminals, including with guns. But ultimately, he doesn't really quite do anything whatsoever. No. Um, he, he also recently, I, I looked at a video by Carlin uh, Borisenko. Uh, he even endorsed, he even somehow inadvertently endorsed this particular guy in the Republican Party that's known to uh, endorse critical race theory, which mm. is you know, when you look into the subjects of it's extremely, uh, it's not only divisive, but it's also blatantly racist. I know, it's, it's all it's twisted really, people, isn't it? It's making people, particularly those who are white-skinned, feel guilty about themselves and that somehow collectively um, there are problems to anybody else, especially people who are not the same colour of skin as they are and that they need to look into subjects like colonialism and therefore mm-hmm. they've somehow got to feel guilty, particularly on a, a collective scale, mm-hmm. about what their particular identity rather than just certain you know, individuals, particularly the governments, have done over the years. Mm-hmm. And it's very patronising to people of colour as well, you know, saying that um, black people are more likely to be late for appointments, I think I heard someone say, you know, it's things, it's just so ridiculous, just everything twisted towards what colour of skin you have, is madness. Yeah. yeah, I even saw one particular video aired by the X-22 report when he viewed it on his channel, because I always tune into it almost every single morning. Uh, there was this particular canvas reform video, I think that's it, Campus Reform did a particular video on interviewing people about this new law coming into place in Georgia about voter ID. And they were saying things like, uh, you know, oh, you know, black people are not comfortable carrying ID with them, including driving licenses with them everywhere. So, you know, it's racist. And, uh, and they started to go out in the street and interview random black people as well to see what their thoughts were. And the majority of them just said, nope. So, no, we're perfectly fine carrying ID. We're ca- yeah. We have no problem taking it to any place, including supermarkets. Yeah. If you want to buy alcohol, if you want to go on a train, if you want to go on a nightclub, right, we're fine having ID. And so the question really kind of gets asked in that moment, yeah, who are the real racists? Okay. So, yeah, yeah. It ultimately, it does make for good fun actually just debunking these people, debunking those, you know, I tend to personally call them fake mental social justice defenders instead mm-hmm. of social justice warriors uh, yeah. because ultimately saying that you're for trying to get something done for society in the name of justice you know it just ultimately just empowers them to mm-hmm. think that they're doing something for a good difference but ultimately particularly because i have eye functioning autism myself and somehow do fit the uh, particular requirements of protected characteristics because it's a disability mm-hmm. can easily just say the very term fake mental social justice defender because mm-hmm. they not only can say to someone, hey, you're not only are actually kind of being fake with your promises, but you're also being absolutely nuts with it. Yes. <laughs> it's just the kind of thing that comes from people who sit in ivory towers. That's my opinion on it anyway. Yeah, ultimately, those people you would meet, we probably would consider appropriately champagne socialists. They mm-hmm. may talk a good, like, own, not just the likes of Owen Jones, but Ash Sarkar as well. They often would talk a good talk about wanting to be there for the people, the racer fists in the air, 
and want yeah. to want to redistribute the wealth to everybody else. But when it push comes to shove and they've got to do something, uh, particularly for protecting people's freedoms and liberties, they don't really give a darn, do they? No, uh, they, just, they don't even yeah. give a darn about uh, freedom of speech, especially. I mean, any time I'd have, even during my days when I was centre left and kind of uh, well, just mainly apolitical, um, I'd have thought for somebody wanted to stand up for my right to justice, and therefore they should stand up for my right to freedom of speech, as well as even my right to protect my property, and not have government get too much into my life, as mm-hmm. well. But unfortunately, they don't. They just express some other desire to have government get into our well, lives in any way. Yeah, there's there always seems they always seem to be quite um, well healed as well, and they've got their comfortable, um, I don't know, their comfortable jobs to protect or something. I I don't know why really what's behind it, but to me it does seem to be people who are cosseted in these sort of ivory towers, and maybe they should get out and meet more people. I don't know. Yeah, I mean they really ought to learn the difference really when they talk about oh my goodness there's such and such including racism everywhere, mm. but. You know, when I particularly learned to listen to certain stories, particularly the things that my parents would tell over the years, not just with the likes of certain skinheads that go about, but, you know, my mum told me a few stories and how to, you know, she taught me as well how to keep an eye out for actual racism in society. Yeah. Um, she talks, I mean, she gave me a shock of when uh, my late grandmother who passed away in 2016 when she was growing up in Hardgate would say to her, yeah, yeah. When you're going out and about dating, you better not date any, but you better not date anybody that's black. I mean, that was basically yeah. a shock to me yes. when I learned about it because I thought my grandmother was always sweet all those years. I mean, she, she brought, probably she was. was. <laughs> yeah, but then of course my mum ended up one time told a story of uh, in the 80s um, when she had all the good ginger hair flowing from her head. Um, she ended up dating this particular. She ended up dating this particular big, strong, fit guy that would often go to the gym a lot of the time and be quite amicable with everybody around him. But unfortunately, when it came to certain subjects like uh, apartheid in South Africa, he actually would refer openly refer to the suffering black population in Africa as, I think the Afrikaans word, if I give me if I'm wrong, is kefos, or in English mm-hmm. it would be translated to cattle. Mm-hmm. And mum just thought, right, you know what, that's the relationship over. I'm not, da- not dating you anymore. Yeah, uh, horrible race. So therefore, you know, you know, it's even been taught in school really that mm-hmm. uh, you have to keep an eye out for you know actual problems in the world, and you've got to keep an eye out uh, and make sure that you know the world you create is a good place around you. So mm-hmm. naturally, many people, myself, you and I included, ultimately do have that mindset of just wanting to be naturally good citizens. Yeah, yeah, and it's a basic uh, conscience and knowing what you you know, just respecting other people without having to have a whole code of ethics that you're not allowed to say this, you're not allowed to say that. Obviously, we don't want to say something that's going to offend people. That's basic decency and common sense. You don't need to have that policed, in my opinion, you know. I don't know, it's just, it's it's really something that seems to be dividing people more these days, and it's a a shame Mm -hmm. to see it. But um, I think we've been talking for a long time now and it's been really interesting. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So just before we wrap up, is there anything else you particularly want to add about your um, what you'll do in, in power or what you'd like to see um, happen in politics? Um, well, I'd generally like to see is, well, I think mainly I would discuss the uh, three main priorities I probably would stick on just to 
help uh, shorten the time a bit. Well, number one is defining freedom of speech. That ultimately needs to be done in particularly good Scotland, whether it be devolved or even as part of the UK or even just independent. That ultimately needs to be stood up for. Here, here. Uh, number two is about defending medical freedoms. And this involves ending the war on drugs. I mean, it's a complete waste of time. No matter how much the government or certain people may try to tell you otherwise, um, mm. you know, as much as you know, drugs taking and the people way people suffer from it is bad. Ultimately, what's just as bad is the way uh, the laws are enforced. And unfortunately, it has never stopped people actually taking these drugs. I mean, most of the time, people who take it just see it as a bit of a thrill, really. Yeah. Uh, so, sort of like how somebody would want to try and be tempted to cross the road to see if they don't get hit buying the cars passing by. Ultimately, mm-hmm. they do get the shock at first, but then their dreadling keeps going through the roof and they ultimately want to keep on trying, even if the actual inevitable ends up happening to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, number three, really, as I've discussed earlier, um, but I'll probably add on something else, really, is to really end the TV licence in general, mm-hmm. along with ending the lockdowns. Right. Because ultimately, we need to see more devolved powers as well as less taxation in general. We need to see openness and transparency of where our taxes are going to. And well, ultimately, in general, you know, we need to be we need to genuinely be striving for a free society instead of a free society in name only. Right. Good. Yeah, they all seem very worthy um, ambitions, and I really hope that this comes about. So. Thanks very much for talking to me, Jonathan, and best of luck on the 6th of May. Yeah, thanks so much, Natalie. Yeah, I certainly hope we see some change. I really do. So I really hope um, things go well for you. Yeah, you can only hope it well. Yes, let's hope so. If you've enjoyed listening to my podcast, please subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you'd like to make a comment, download a transcript or view the show notes, go to imaginingfreedom.co.uk. Thanks for listening.